We're starting a new series uh, for the next few weeks, and it's going to be called Saints and Scoundrels. So, yeah, uh, Saints and Scoundrels. And the idea was to go through Scripture, primarily the Old Testament, and highlight characters and their lives, really asking the question, why is this there? Why, Why is this strange story, this person, in the Bible? What benefit is that to our lives? How do we navigate that and pull from it and draw from it um, and grow in holiness? So today is going to be on the story of David's son Amnon and the abuse and and rape of his sister Tamar. Um, It's a fascinating story for for many reasons. I think it shines a light on David and his kingdom, um, particularly what happens sort of to the fall of his, his great throne in many ways. So let's not uh, delay too much. I'll explain a little bit more of that. So when you study these stories, I think the idea today is not just to find ourselves with a nice message. You know, sometimes you can read a story like that and you can ask the question, well, what's the point? What's the message? The simple, rote, little thing I need to learn from that and life isn't that way. People's lives aren't that way and so when you read the Bible, Sometimes it isn't that way. And you look at the story of David, and you just ask the simple question, well, what am I supposed to learn? What's the message? Well, you find in the actual text of Scripture a very complex, multifaceted life, a man who was what? After God's own heart, a man to be imitated, a man whose uh, courage and bravery should be imitated. And yet you find also a man whose life in many ways was horrific, uh, who committed great sins, great atrocities, um, a man whose life stands as a warning to those who don't heed the wisdom of God. And I think here one of the most important things is that we stand in um, a line of Scripture with all of these stories illustrated for us so that we see Christ and we say, that's our man. Sort of to the Corinthian point where, you know, they're attaching themselves onto this leader. The, the Christians should just go, that's it. Uh, a lot of the Pharisees would say, we follow Moses or we follow Abraham. And they attach themselves onto these, these characters. And we have no one like that but Christ that we can grab onto in every facet and say that this is holiness. This is right. This is something to imitate so to get into this particular story, I think we've got to back up. If you've got your Bible, open it up to 2 Samuel chapter 12. Excuse me, chapter 13 is where we're going. 2 Samuel chapter 13. But to get into the story of David's son, I think we first have to get into the story. Leading up to it in the text, I think it's interesting the placement and the sort of the rapid placement of this. You have 2 Samuel chapter 11, the story of David and Bathsheba. 2 Samuel chapter 12, you have Nathan, his friend's rebuke, and this kind of new element to David's household, the, the, the curse and the fall of his children. The very next chapter is the focus of this morning is chapter 13 in an illustration of his son, and precisely some of the sins of his own father. So let's just kind of walk through what we know of the story of, of David and Bathsheba. We don't have to read it because we're going to read chapter 13. But what do we know? When, when was David um, 
committing that sin, do you guys know what he should have been doing, what was going on in Israel? Kings go out to war. Yeah. Yeah, it was the time when the kings were to go out to war. Don't exactly know why, but David is, is held back here. He's not where he should be. Um, he is presumably seeing Bathsheba. Uh, it says that she is, she's cleansing herself from her impurity, which was like a Levitical rite. She, you know, it's a, a time where you know, she was um, menstrually unclean, and he saw her and wanted her, and what did he do? You guys know the story? Not only did he go and take her, he, he sort of plotted it out. He's the king. He doesn't have to go do these things himself. So he asks men to go take her. He sleeps with her. She becomes pregnant. Um, one of the first things that he does is he finds his right-hand man, the guy who knows where the skeletons are buried, Joab. He's the kind of guy who gets his hands dirty. Um, and he says, I want you to go find her husband. He's fighting a war, and I want you to bring him back here. Do you all know what happens in that story? So he brings Uriah back, and he goes, hey, how's it going? How's it, how's it going out there? He's like, uh, it's war. Pretty awful. <laughs> One of my friends have died. Uh, why am I here? He's like, why don't you uh, take some of this wine? Why don't you drink up? You know what? Uriah, Uriah's a Hittite, by the way, so he's sort of like a, a foreign man. And he says, why don't you go enjoy a night with your wife, Uriah? What's the point of that? Oh, she's pregnant. Great. You, well, you know, it's probably that night when you came home from the battle and we gave you all those drinks. And, but Uriah uh, proves to be an honorable man and he sleeps outside of the, the, in the king's court. And the next day, David goes, well, why, what are you doing here? Why didn't you go home? And he said, well, my, you know, my brothers are out there fighting. Um, there's no way I could dishonor them by, you know, taking this type of pleasure of just being on my own bed and being with my wife. Um, I'm a man under orders. And so David, um, you know, he, he, he tries again one more time. He gives him a lot to drink, says, you know, go home, and he says that he wouldn't do it again. Long story short, David finally tells Joab, he says, here, uh, through this is this is even weirder. He gives Uriah a message, and he says, "Give this to Joab when you go back to the front lines." It's a letter, uh, basically for his own death. And David says, "Hey, at some point in the battle, send Uriah to the front of the hardest fighting, because I want him to be gone." That happens. And here's here's one thing that I think I forget until I was rereading it is that not only did Uriah die. David gets a message back from his, presumably his generals and his commanders that um, Joab had led part of the army up close to the, the walls that they were fighting against, the, the, like the, the fortress walls. And that's something you don't do in battle because the archers can kind of just look down on you like Helm's Deep. You know what I'm talking about? And um, you all know, know what I'm talking about. There we go. And uh, you don't do that. So David's like outraged. He's like, why did you bring them up to the, to the walls? All these people were, were killed. And Joab said, just want to remind you, Joab was up there. That was the move that he chose. So a lot of times we say David murdered Uriah. We forget David, David's hands were guilty for lots of people in that singular move. He took a whole you know, battalion up to the walls, and they were slaughtered. Um, and just Uriah was part of that. 
So then Nathan comes. This is chapter 12, his friend. You know, he tells the story, the parable of the man who just has the one lamb. Then there was a rich man, and the rich man had a house guest come over, and the rich man said, I don't want to sacrifice any of my own lambs for hosting this guest. I'll take the poor man with his one lamb, and I will sacrifice that to serve my guest. And David said, this is an outrage. That man needs to be killed. Then he says, you're the man. You're the man. You're the king. You, you have all that you ever wanted, and you wanted this one man's wife, and you took her. You're the man. At the end of that, <clears throat> let's see. Look at verse 8 of chapter 12. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 8. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord? to do what is evil in his sight. You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Now therefore the sword will never depart from you. That's verse 10. Verse 11. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his own house. And then the next section of Scripture is that that baby born to David and Bathsheba did, did die. Um, this kind of seems to be the, the turning point for the, the line of David, really where his, even though we get a unique example of a man who in horrible sin turns, you can read in Psalm 51, you can read his lament, you can read his repentance. He's calling for the Lord, do not take your spirit from me. That is an example to be imitated. Um, we, we do see the consequences, nevertheless, of a man who made such decisions. And so we're going to look at some of those consequences primarily through the narrative of his son Amnon and what that tells us about sort of generational sins, what it tells us about the dynamic of sin. And what we'll do today is, is I will read the chapter it's really a narrative story of Amnon. And I think the best way to break it down is to go character by character and just ask some questions. So what I want from you this morning is to listen intently. And as we diagnose the characters with those questions in mind of how are we learning from this? Why is this here? What good does that serve me? We want to learn to be good Bible readers. We want to learn to put ourselves in the Bible story and learn It's exactly why it's here for us to um, heed the warnings that Scripture gives, hold on to the faith that we can imitate, and flee from some of the paths that some of these people take. Um, even if we think we're not in the same situation they are, I think we'll find this morning that many of them are the same. Many of the dynamics at play in their lives are the same in ours. Um, so woe to us if we don't pay attention. So let me read 
the chapter, chapter 13, if you'd like to follow along, and then we'll diagnose with some questions. So, Amnon and Tamar. Now, Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And after a time, Amnon, David's son, loved her. And Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin. And it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shimea, David's brother. And Jonadab was a very crafty man. And he said to him, O son of the king, why are you so haggard morning after morning? Will you not tell me? Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Jonadab said to him, Well, lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. And when your father comes to see you, say to him, Let my sister Tamar come and give me bread to eat, and prepare the food in my sight, that I may see it and eat it from her hand. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill, and when the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, Please let my sister Tamar come and make a couple of cakes in my sight, that I may eat from her hand. Then David sent home to Tamar, saying, Go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house, where he was lying down. And she took dough and kneaded it to make cakes in his sight and bake the cakes. And she took the pan and emptied it out before him. But he refused to eat. And Amnon said, Send everyone out from me, so that everyone went out from him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, Bring the food into the chamber, that I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the cakes she had made and brought them into the chamber to Amnon, her brother. But when she brought them near to him to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, Come lie with me, my sister. She answered him, No, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, where could I carry my shame? And as for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Now, therefore... Please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. But he would not listen to her. And being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. Then Amnon hated her with a very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he loved her, excuse me, the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, Get up, go. She said to him, No, my brother, for this wrong in sending me away is greater than the one that you did to me. But he would not listen to her. He called the young man who served him and said, Put this woman out of my presence and bolt the door after her. Now she was wearing a long robe with sleeves, for thus were the virgin daughters of the king dressed. So his servant put her out and bolted the door after her. And Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the long robe that she wore. She laid her hand on her head And went away crying aloud as she went. And her brother Absalom said to her, Has Amnon put your brother, uh, your brother been with you? Now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this to heart. So Tamar lived, a desolate woman, in her brother Absalom's house. When King David heard of all these things, he was very angry. But Absalom spoke to Amnon, neither good nor bad. For Absalom hated Amnon, because he had violated his sister Tamar. Really quickly, the way this story sort of plays out is that Tamar does go to live with her brother Absalom. Absalom, for the next two years, 
plots the murder of his brother, and finally appeals to David, goes to David's house and says, hey, I'm, I'm hosting this great banquet. Please let all my brothers come. And these are not close brothers, by the way. These are brothers born to different mothers. Um, so he says, I want all of David's children to come be hosted at my house. Um, there is where he has his men kill Amnon. David is terrified during that, uh, during that meeting because Jonadab, Amnon's friend, tells the king, he said, I, uh, excuse me, some people come report to David. They said, there's been a slaughter at the party and all of the king's sons are dead. Jonadab grabs the king and says, I don't think that they're all dead. It's probably just Amnon. It's kind of a weaselly guy, sort of a worm tongue kind of figure, if you remember um, in Lord of the Rings. Um, it, Absalom becomes a stench to David, that curse from Nathan that his wives, David's wives, would be taken publicly as a sign of horrific shame actually was fulfilled later on by his own son, Absalom. Horrific story um, and a horrific breach in the family line. So let's diagnose this a little bit. Let's go character by character, play by play, and sort of talk through what is going on, what can we learn, what can we see as, the, as sort of the tactics of sin that play themselves out in our own lives, and maybe what could we do about them. Matthew Henry says this of David, by the way, setting the stage. He says, the character of David was singularly rich in fine qualities, but it was also marked by a few flaring defects. One was proneness to animal indulgence. Another, the occasional absence of straightforwardness. These were the very defects which his children copied. Sins of the father, sins of the son. All right, let's talk about Amnon. I'm going to stop talking here. Let's kind of diagnose what was going on with Amnon. What made him sick? Lust. Lust, okay. But particularly, what does the story say about his lust. Who was his lust for, and why was it particularly grievous? His sister. Yeah, yeah. And what what about um, what about it? Sort of heightened the tension. It being his sister. She's a virgin. She's 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 off limits. She's off limits. There's something to that. Uh, I'm gonna kind of set the stage here, and then we'll kind of bounce back and forth on these this line of thinking because this is kind of how I want us to do it. It's similar to the Garden of Eden. Very primitive, very early sort of draw is something that is forbidden. Forbidden fruit, Proverbs tells us, seems sweeter. For whatever reason it is, his, uh, his lust and his indulgence, it being his sister, the text actually said her being a virgin forced him to say, but there's nothing I can do about it. Which is clearly wrong. In her own view, she said, hey, look, we're stepbrother and sister. If you ask the king, he'd give me to be your wife. But she currently was off limits. Right? There's something to that. What, let's talk about that. Why is sin like that? What does it appeal to us? What is it trying to tell us? We don't want someone else to tell us that we can and can't. Right. Mm-hmm. Instant gratification. Yep. Instant gratification. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if I say don't think of an elephant, what do you do? Yeah, you think of an elephant. All right. The law, the scripture says that, right? When a law comes down, it, it sort of forces you 
uh, as a checkpoint to, to think about it, to approach it, to, to sort of acknowledge it. Um, she sort of served as an embodiment. Her clothing served as an embodiment. She was off limits. And his lust, instead of um, you know, leading his desires into an honorable pursuit, his lust led him to do what? Let's move on to the next point. What did he do first? Before the actual event molesting her, what did he do next? He plotted. Yeah. Let's talk about that. What did he do? What means did he use? Pretended to be sick. Pretended to be sick. Yeah. But he also was that guy in the, yeah, the weasel, you know, having Uh someone in your life who is a bad influence, like, planted the seed in a way. Yeah. We can go ahead and talk about that. Um, yeah, it says that his, his, you know, he's just kind of mopey. Why? And his friend notices, hey, why are you, why are you sad, man? What's going on? So as he tells him, he's like, oh, okay, let's just plot this horrible thing. Yeah. <laughs> you know, First uh, Corinthians fifteen thirty three says, do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Let's talk about that for a second. Let's talk about friendships, how they sort of push us either one way or the other. Or just even culture. I mean, you know, that says, oh, it's okay. Mm. Let you, yeah, but, but yeah, well, everybody has those thoughts, or everybody, you know, does that, or, you know, it's all okay as our culture today, right? Right. It doesn't matter if you want it, get it. Yes. Yeah, so, we, so who do we make a friend of? Sometimes a, uh, a friend, I think Oscar Wilde says, a friend stabs you in the front, an enemy stabs you in the back. Yeah. You know, a friend wants to hurt you and just say, hey, brother, this is going to hurt. And, uh, but yeah, if you make a friend of the world, when, you, when your lusts are, are inflamed, yeah, go right ahead. Go right ahead. Take and eat and do what you will. What does that tell us about the importance of surrounding ourselves with with good people. Yeah. Don't be fools. Yeah, iron sharpens iron. Yeah. Iron sharpens iron. I think we're all going to experience moments of weakness, <clears throat> but it's sort of who we meet and how we talk through them. I mean, we could sit around and commiserate, like, this is so horrible. I'm having trouble in my marriage. I'm having trouble mm. with my kids. I'm whatever. And you, the people that are surrounding you are sort of going to shape your outlook. Yeah. yeah. yeah the first time I looked at something inappropriate online or roundabout there was at a sleepover yeah. at a friend's house, you know. Classic. I think that's most people's stories. Like, you know, the one kid who, like, was, like, street smart at 12. Like, oh, that kid knows. He knows some stuff, right? Um, and then I've got the same testimony of being 18 and having a friend who was a godly man and just pushed me to to love the scriptures and push me to accountability. One of the first things in Proverbs, the first kind of warning uh, to, to wisdom was to who you associate yourself with. Particularly, I'm looking at you guys because I, I, I associate Proverbs primarily written to young men. It's who you associate with. Um, do not attach yourself to men who are going to push you into your lusts and stand by. It's kind of like the guy who says, like, yeah, man, jump, 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 jump. Like, he's never going to jump yeah. off the, Like That guy's fine, but he's totally like the instigator, like, do it, do it. Do it. Uh, that's not the guy that you want. So tend to surround. If you want to do something, you find the people yeah. that yeah. will affirm that. Yes. It's kind of like. Good point. 
if you're drinking or drug or whatever, right? You don't want anybody around you that's not doing the same that can convict you because you don't want you, know, you don't want to quit. That's right. That's right. Matthew Henry notes on the character of Jonadab. In reality, the friend was more guilty than the culprit. The one was blinded by his passion, but the other was self-possessed and cool. The cool man encourages the heated. The sober man urges on the intoxicated. Um, he also notes, the case of those is very miserable. You guys listen to this. The case of those is very miserable whose friends, instead of admonishing and reproving them, flatter them and forward them in their sinful ways and are their counselors and contrivers to do wickedly. Hmm. Um, Wish that he had had a friend, that in that moment of confidence, man, what's wrong with you? Why are you feeling so bad? Man, I just, I just got this lust, this sickness. Had a friend been able to turn aside such a, such a wicked, horrific story. So you have two men abdicating, two men using their intellect, scheming, two men using their strength to fulfill lust and to abuse somebody. Andrew? Yeah. It's even, even now, as like, I, I guess a more... Even in the mature Christian life, it can be a temptation to use the verse of being all things to all people to, um, like, justify, you know, hanging out with folks who might be bad influences. And, mm-hmm. like, it's the kind of garbage in, garbage out thing. Like, if you're primarily being fed by them, like, you're not going to be an effective mm-hmm. um, minister of the gospel to them. Yeah. So, yeah. Let's go back to the character of Amnon. Just kind of focus there for a little bit because I think there's a lot to draw in here. We're getting these great principles that are that are warning. They're, you know, if you've got a dashboard in your own mind, I mean, you've got some warning lights going off, right? When you start to, I think someone mentioned this, when you start to scheme, what's going on with that? What does your mind tell you when you really want to sin and you start stretching truths or trying to find ways to get alone. What's going on with that? Seems like there are warning signs, but there's also, this could work. Self-deception? Yeah. No one will know. That was another thing. So Amnon says, hey, have my sister come bake these cakes, which as a dad, by the way, like, why, why do you need your sister? To, like, you get servants. Ever, why do you need your That's really weird. Uh, like, dad, dad, I don't feel good. My stomach. I need my sister to come bake me these cakes and, like, hand deliver them. Like, that's, you know, uh, something's wrong with their His dad should have. But then in those days, the women just served. Who knows? I, I would assume that there's someone else instead of the royal family to, to, to deliver the cakes that he had to ask specifically probably tells me that she wasn't the one that was normally doing it. He said there's a, there's a self-deception there. He sought for secrecy and privacy. Um, and particularly, we, we know this from Scripture, that there are no secret sins. You might think that what's done in secret is concealed, but your sin will find you out. You know, it does come out. So if you think that this isn't hurting anybody, um, 
Let's talk about that for a second. There are some there are some sins that do kind of seem like that. That's this is no one's going to be affected. No one even saw. No one knows. Um, there are many things that you have to do to keep up that facade and that secret. So you add to that line. You know, where were you? What were you doing? You, you add on top. You're compounding it with all this deception. But some sins are not just like, um, hey, I, you know. It's not like I shot anybody. No one got hurt. Some sins are like playing with uranium. Um, if, if my neighbor uh, tells a lie, that might not affect me in my house. But if my neighbor's playing with uranium in his house, some sins are like radiation. Does that make sense? Yeah. Some sins are like you think nobody knows, but everyone in my house is sick. That's how that works. Like, some sins work that way. And, and why is now David's, David's sins imprinted on the lives of his sons? Okay. Let's try to compare quickly Amnon's story to David's. What are some similarities? Taking something that isn't yours. Primarily on lust. Right? Plotting. Plotting. What was the Plotting. Oh, just get combined. Com- I mean, both of them were plotting to take yeah. some, uh, you know, a woman, yeah. you know, that wasn't belonging to mm-hmm. them, right? With a yeah. colleague, friend, I don't know what you'd call it. Yeah, an, right? an enabler. An enabler. And, and, and they each had an enabler, yeah. and a J, a J named enabler. Yeah. A Joab yeah. or a Jonadab. Yeah. Um, yeah, fascinating kind of pattern. That's why I read the previous chapters, was sort so that we could sort of see David commit this sin. He's cursed, and then this, there he goes, his son. It's like straight into it, which as a parent's terrifying. Um, and God, you know, God has mercy. He says, you know, I, it's, it's not, his mercy is to a thousand generations, but sometimes the curse is to the third and fourth generation, which I think there's a truthism in there. There's an axiom that the Lord is merciful and, will, and does cut off generational sins, which by God's grace... May that be us. May, may, may we be the sons that cut off, or the, or the wives, the daughters that cut off the sins of our parents, the patterns of our parents. Martin Luther has a great quote on lust in particular. He says, I can't keep the birds from flying over my head, but I can prevent them from making a nest there. So I can't prevent the birds from flying over my head. Things are going to happen. Lusts are going to come across your mind, passions, indulgences. But you are the one responsible for it making a nest and living there and not mortifying the flesh. Um, another dynamic is, is that, I, I think you guys brought it out, is that they, uh, they conceived these plans and then they plotted them. There, there's one thing where it's you know, just in the moment, it's a passionate thing. Not that it's, uh, there's any relenting on the, on the uh, condemnation there. But when you plot and plan and you have time to let it sit and um, you are meticulously planning harm to someone is quite another thing. The next, obviously, is that Amnon, we are told, uses his great strength as a man, as a brother, an older brother, to overpower his sister, which men primarily, our, our strength is to protect and to provide. Anytime we're using our strength to hurt, uh, particularly the, the innocent, you know, we are, we are a complete rejection of the, the strength God gives us. 
Now there is a hurting and protecting, sure. So we use our strength to protect. That's that's just fine. But when we use our strength to harm and sin, it's particularly gross in the in the manner in which we're made. So our anthropology, our our being made in God's image, the ability to have and carry strength, and then to use that strength uh, when precisely Christ is laying his strength down. Y'all see that? So he lays his life down in protection. Um, doesn't wield that strength for, for harm. <clears throat> so Amnon is warned by Tamar that he's being a fool. He's abdicating his role as, this is a, we haven't talked about this yet, he's the future king. It doesn't say it in the text, but if you follow the order on which David's children are born, Amnon's his firstborn son. He's the heir to the throne. So here we have a, a, a son who's right behind his father, presumably stands to marry whoever he wants to marry and as a prince indulges in this lust, plots it, and is murdered afterward. Um, so he, he's not only abdicating uh, decency. She tells him, you're, you're a fool. The most outrageous fool in Israel doesn't do something like, like this, but he's also abdicating the throne. He's not going to be able to inherit, um, which... There is something there as well to our lusts. The type of men that we may be sometimes is sacrificed on the altar of our sin. Many times is sacrificed on the altar of our sin. The type of men that we were intended to be. The type of husbands or fathers that we, for a short-term pleasure, even in our youth, right, we abdicate the future joys of uh, taking dominion like King David, like his father, for a momentary pleasure. How many times have you seen that with leaders and their children? Yeah. Well, and I find it, it's, a, it's a really perfect picture of, I mean, the culture says there is no real sexual sin, like you can do whatever you want yeah. and, and you know, however you want, but it is. It, it, it seems like you're not doing anything wrong according to the culture, but it's death. Like, look at how it plays out. Like, yeah. this is a perfect picture of it. It, it. It is death. It brings death, whether it's by murder or plotting or just stealing your future. Yeah. yeah. It's a bad deal all around. It's a bad deal all around, and you're never really taught the consequences. Um. I, I, this was a, I don't know, it's a practice a friend, I guess, encouraged me to do. Um, and I think it's helpful. I don't think it's un, unbiblical by any means, but I, he would kind of say, like, just think through the consequences of this. Like, okay, just say you're tempted and you want to do this. Let's just play that out. Like, go ahead and play it out. Do that. Uh, and then you got the guilty stage. And you got to, okay, then we're going to pray to the Lord, ask for forgiveness stage. And then you're going to have this opportunity. You know, so you're kind of playing it out. Now, you don't want to, the reason why I hesitate saying it, you don't want to, like, okay, I'm going to act right because of what's in it for me. Does that make sense? I'm going to obey the Lord just because of this like transactional uh, pros and cons list. You don't want to do that. We want to follow the Lord because His ways are right and He's holy. He's, he's, he's right. But I think there is some wisdom in going, can you see past the lie? Could Adam in the garden have seen that the fruit, we're told, was good to the eye, right? It was the lust of the eyes, um, uh, lust of the flesh and the boastful part of life. And it said the fruit looked good to his eyes and he took his wife's advice and he ate. Could he have seen or should he be able to see 
what would have happened afterward. Well, yes, I think that's the glory of wisdom. I think that's precisely what the Proverbs teach, is that there is wisdom that you can see behind the lie and behind the lust. Go there. The smart man goes there and looks around and goes, oh, this is a dog's breakfast. Like, this is just gross. I'm having nothing to do with that. I'm following the Lord. I'll take the straight path, the narrow path, um, taste and see that the Lord is good. You know, okay. We noted briefly that David in Psalm 51 has a passage devoted to his repentance. Did we get that with Amnon? No, we don't. In fact, you know, don't, is it weird that I'm just like munching on an orange right here? I'm trying to stay awake because of the thing. Um, like, I need something. I know, I'm like, everybody's sick. <laughs> Um, I don't know if that's how that works, but um, yeah, <laughs> yeah, falling fast. Um, we are told that in her sorrow, he actually, what does he do? Get, get her out! Of, get her out of my chambers! Somebody come take her away! Get her out of here! Shut the door! Bolt the door! Doesn't seem that his heart. His heart was softened. Seeing his heart was hardened. And I don't know that you have much control of that. Um, that is to say, it is God's grace that softens a heart. And you need to understand something about sin. It's not that sin comes upon you, um, that you're walking with the Lord and everything's strong, and then boom, you just cheat on your wife. It doesn't happen like that. Romans, Romans 1 indicates that sin is a judgment for previous sin. So the more I indulge in sin, the more that I don't fight sin, the more that I plot the lust, the more that I instigate and think about it and dwell on it, it becomes an idol of the heart. When the event comes to happen, that's the big blow-up event, it's actually a judgment for many, many previous sins. Does that make sense? So I don't think these like big grotesque sins, when you see sometimes will happen with a minister and people, oh man, he just must have been a thing. Usually not. Usually not. It's a secret sin that they've been dwelling on. So um, a lot of times being given over to your lust, what Romans 1 says, is a very terrible thing to fall into the hands of the Lord. A very terrible thing to fall into the hands of, a, of the living God who says, okay, you have wanted this, you have held this as an idol of your heart, you may have it. That's a scary, scary thing. So if you find yourself in a situation where you're indulging in sin and you're going, well, what, what, what is this? As your pastor, I would say you need to plead to the Lord and not be sorry just for that event or that thing that happened. Your, your mind is confused. You have had an idol that you've held onto for a long time that has led you to that point. And you've needed to mortify that idol a long time ago. And it is usually a judgment from the Lord to indulge in, in those types of things. Um, so part of the punishment is the, is the sin. Does that make sense? Part of God's punishment is that thing that you just did. It doesn't necessarily always come afterward. Part of the punishment is the sin. Okay? Um, have you ever heard of the law of re- diminishing returns? Right? The more you indulge you have to go further the next time to get the same sort of, of high. 
Lust particularly is that way. And that's what drives a man like this to plot that type of grotesque action. It's, it's, it, it demands more of your mind and more of your appetite to fill it, even if it means um, a grotesque thing. See Romans 1 again on that. God has uh, given them over to a debased mind, and as the sins listed in Romans 1 increase and goes towards a trajectory of even homosexuality explicitly mentioned, why? Because of that law of diminishing returns. You're, 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 you're pursuing lust and lust and lust, and so the, the demands on you to fulfill that become increasingly more perverted twisted and further away from God's intent for you. So lies get worse and sexual pursuits get worse and worse like that uh, betrayal of his sister and to the point of Romans 1 to homosexuality. It is a judgment. The sin itself is the judgment like we mentioned earlier. Any questions or thoughts before we move on to another character? Go ahead. Just the the line you read about... um, how Amnon hated, hated Tamar more yeah. than he loved her. Mm-hmm. So that, like really striking because it's a great description of um, the results of, of sin. Mm. Let's talk about that. What did he mean when he said, I, I, I love Tamar? He told Jonadab, oh, what, what's wrong with you? Oh, I, I just love I just love her. Well, obviously not. Yeah. <laughs> let's, let's talk about that for a minute. Yeah. What is, so, what, so what lie is it when our brains go, I just, I just need this. I, I love it. You know, my, to your point, self-deception. I, I just, couldn't you imagine? Couldn't you hear him like, Dad? I mean, I'm just right here. I'm just lovesick, or I just need it, or I'm whatever. How did, so? Let's talk about that. What is, what is love in that instance? I mean, there are Greeks have different words for love, and we just kind of have one. So we have to sort of diagnose it and talk about it. Eros, yeah, right. Or love yeah. of self. Mm. What do you mean by that? Well, you're not loving someone, loving them well. You're loving yourself, mm-hmm. loving your your lusts, your interests, and and doing whatever you need to do to pursue self, not someone else. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, the like he did, and she even had that comment. Like there was a path to like a right way like he could have had like I don't know how long it took to get married in those days but like a short bit of self-control and they would have been married and he would have been first in line to the throne and this could have been like this great story in some ways of his future queen or one of his queens kind of thing but mm-hmm. you know but he only wanted her when he couldn't have her That's but what it was, yeah it wasn't supposed to have her was there a construct where like even if he didn't take her as a wife if she was someone else's wife he could have taken her the right of Primanoctra, <laughs> which I don't think is a real thing. Uh, uh, yeah. See, the deep cut Braveheart reference. Of everybody. Um, anyway, no, I, th- I think, I mean, she did. The, the text indicates that she said, hey, look, this, we can make this legitimate. We can make this legitimate. I don't think you heard you weren't in the room, but he's, he's the firstborn son to David. He would have been in line for the throne. So we have that concept of his thinking love is just love for himself, right? 
obsession. Where do we see that in our culture? Like, what's a, li- a modern lie that sort of says the same thing? Follow your heart. Follow your heart. Yeah. Disney would make a song out of that. Let it go. I just want my kids to be happy. Just want my kids to be happy because I love them. Yeah, I won't discipline my kids because I love them. Uh, okay, so we we had this this sense of of love, obviously again tied to this self deception. Uh, you know, and I, I there's probably some wisdom there in counseling people who are even if they are trying to make it legitimate, going towards marriage. I just you know remember being a young guy and I can't, oh, I can't wait you know I can't wait to get married and. It, it, I think there is some obscurity there culturally that we have of what even love is. Um, a love is a dying to self, not an indulging of the self. Uh, it's not just a feeling. It's not just this uh, this sort of heightened sense. And that's what Amnon seems to get. He's he, he, he's churned up right in himself, which is a wonderful thing in in commitment and in love. But it is much more than that. It has to be more than that to be love. Um, Was there in that culture that he could have married her even as a half-sister? I think so. Yeah, I think that happens. Yeah, he's like the king. You know, the king will make this legitimate. You know, So here we have, I think, a picture from Scripture for us to learn by. Someone t- totally punting their, uh, their future. Someone completely you know, uh, wrapped up in, in lust in a strange pattern of their father. Their father, who we're told to imitate. But a man who repented, an Amnon who did not. So let's go to the opposite end of that spectrum, Andrew, and it says that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he supposedly loved her. He hated himself. He hated himself. <laughs> he hated himself. Right. Well, he didn't really love her. He just loved the idea of her. Right. Because if he really loved her, he would have done it the right way. That's right. She reminded him of how much she hates himself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she needed to be discarded. Guards come, take her, and she said, no, the, 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 she said, the second thing you're about to do, discarding me, because there was a law that he could have paid, um, paid the, well, it would have been his own father, he would have paid the father, to take her and make her his wife. And she, she even said that, you know, you can't, you can't discard me. The second thing you're about to do is worse than the first. Because it ruined her. Because it ruined her. And she spent the rest of her life living with her brother. Absalom. She, yeah, he stole both of their future. And she lived in Absalom's house. We don't know, I don't know, if, I don't know that it exactly says how she died or when she died, but Absalom, who housed his sister for the rest of her life and provided for her, when he had a daughter, he named her Tamar. Was there shame for him in this? Because he decided pretty quickly that, you know, well, I love you and was so, so, I don't know, just totally <clears throat> hell-bent on being after her. And then, no, you have to be out of sight. You're gone. I, there's yeah. no chance I'm ever going to be with you. The text doesn't say. But I, I would presume no. And we're going to get to this in a minute, but David doesn't seem to do anything about this. As a father. Did he know? He says I mean, he was covered up. Yeah, he does know. We're told that he knows, and he said that he's angry 
but that he didn't do anything. And the one who housed Tamar was the brother, Absalom. Completely fork in the road, by the way, from Absalom later on becomes a total stench to his dad and opens up full-on war against his father's kingdom to the point where David has to leave Jerusalem and flee his own son. Uh, so let's talk about the hatred element from us. Kind of get back to that. Um, Shakespeare has a line that says, Past reason hunted and no sooner had is past reason hated. Past reason hunted. It's, it's lust. I gotta have it. Gotta have it. Gotta have it. Gotta have it. When you get it. Okay. Done. Done with that. C.S. Lewis has a, a couple good lines on this. He says, Need pleasures, which is, I think, helpful in how we talk talking to find love, he says, need pleasures tend to make statements about ourselves in the past tense. When appreciative pleasures are in question, we tend to make statements about the object in the present tense. This is, this is, a, this is a, a kind of a terse phrase, but like, she was good in bed, opposed to, I love my wife. Past tense object, conquered, fulfilled lust, whatever, versus present tense, abiding sense of love. He goes on, he says that, he illustrates that point. Um, The scullery tap, water, um, and the tumbler are very attractive indeed when we come in parched from mowing the grass. But six seconds later, they're emptied of all interest. The smell of frying food is very different before and after breakfast. And have there not, for most of us, been moments of the sight of the word gentleman's restroom over the door has roused joy almost worthy of celebration in verse, but then disregarded with no further interest. That's pretty good, right? Yeah, it's like, I, that's the only thing in my mind that I want is bathroom right now. And then it's like, okay, well, it's the last place I'd want to be after the fact. That's very insightful to what's going on here. And using the word love for both is ridiculous. It's kind of sad that we only have the one word for love. But that also that thought of past and present, you know. Um, Unfortunately, hmm. is love so... Nonchalant way in this culture, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, I love my coffee, or I love, you know, it's just, you know, I love this friend, or I mean, it's just, yeah. I love it. Yeah, yeah, I love that for you. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Let's quickly highlight David, and let's tie a bow on this, and I think a few of these will be in regards to David. So David himself, some of David's other men. I think we'll do Joab. I like this. I, I getting into a character and going, what what is there? How does this tie in? What do I learn? What do I flee from? And what is it telling me about the nature of sin? I learn a lot about, um, and I'll speak candidly to you guys, just dealing in lust and battling internet and the things that are available to me, I learn a lot from this story as a warning about deception of, of, of friendships, 
of pa- what to do with my passions and diagnosing what, what it is that I'm actually feeling. Is it lust? Is it love? Is it self-pity? There's a lot to, to learn here. Um, Matthew Henry speaking on David's failure here. He says, but he cannot bear the shame those must submit to who correct that in each in others which they are conscious of in themselves and therefore his anger must serve instead of his justice and his um, and this hardens sinners it's a bit of a confusing quote but he says um, he cannot correct that which he is conscious of in himself is maybe a simple way to put that David needs to step in right and correct this but he doesn't and you got to kind of wonder if he sees in his, his son this horrible self-reflection of, I, I, I did that. I'm almost like a, a paralyzing, that was me. And even still, I think if you feel like that, and you probably will, you will see, I, I, we're not there yet in our raising of our children, but I imagine we're going to see and go, that, oh, that's me, that's so me, that's my sin, and have a hesitancy to want to out of embarrassment, help them. Um, it seems that David has that. Second um, Samuel 13, verses 21 says, When King David heard all of these things, he was very angry. But Absalom spoke to Amnon, neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. Two years later, right, Absalom kills Amnon. You know the text that says, Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Let the sun go down on his anger for two years. Right? So it's just kind of created this atomic bomb of revenge and destruction in David's household. Um, and David becomes the object of his son's wrath. And you've got to imagine that it's a lot for not stepping in and doing anything at the abuse of his own sister. So we have in David's line, in David's line, a savior who came. A Savior who didn't abuse, a Savior whose um, contemplation and plotting was for our good and not for our destruction, um, one who had come to serve and not be served, one who used his strength to protect and not to violate, and one who judges the unrepentant but pardons the humble. You know, we have, out of all of these biblical anchors that we even want to hold on to, we only have one that does it right. There is a singular Savior. There is a singular example to us. Even though we learn much from these other characters, we have a singular rescuer. Because I don't want myself to be a biography and somebody's Sunday school lesson, right? Uh, it, It must be Christ. It must be Christ that we hold on to. Let's